0: Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. We are continuing our series of sermons on the great doctrines of the Christian faith as they are summarized for us in the Belgic Confession of Faith. Today, with the Lord's help, we want to consider the subject of what the Bible teaches about the civil government. And in this connection, I invite you to turn with me to a scripture passage on that subject, Romans 13, as we read the verses 1 through 7. Hear God's word. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority, resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, Honor to whom honor. This ends the reading of the Holy Word of God. May the Lord bless His Word to our hearts. Dear friends, as Christians, we live in two kingdoms. We live, first of all, in the kingdom of God. In Philippians 3, verse 20, the Apostle Paul reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven. And that means while we are in this world, we are not of this world. We are just pilgrims passing through, making our way to a heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. But we also live in the kingdom of this world, and that means we do not form communes. We do not establish separate cities or even countries. No, we live and work side by side with people from the world. Now, as citizens of the world, we are necessarily subject to the governments of this world. But what does that mean exactly? What is the precise relationship between the church, or we could say the Christian, and the state? That's the subject of our sermon today. And a sermon on this subject is very timely, because we live in a day and an age of great skepticism regarding government, also, sadly, among Christians. And that is certainly understandable to some extent. During the past 50 years or so, the Western world has witnessed a lamentable decline in political leadership and statesmanship. Politicians today do not lead, they follow. They do whatever the voters or their party wants, whether it is good for the country or not, and all in an attempt to maintain political power. What is more, since the outbreak of COVID-19, governments around the world have demonstrated a willingness to restrict basic human rights, including the freedom to worship, in ways that only a few years ago would have seemed impossible. And so if there ever was a time to reflect on the Christian's relationship to the civil authorities, that time surely is now. So with this in mind and the Lord's help, let's consider what the Bible teaches on the church and the civil government. That's our theme. And we'll consider, first of all, the origin of the civil government, secondly, the task of the civil government, and thirdly, the believer's duty toward the civil government. The Belgian Confession begins by stating that the institution of civil government has its origin in God. And I quote, Our gracious God has appointed kings, princes, and magistrates. The word magistrates is an old-fashioned term for local officials or rulers of Towns and cities. Now, this is clearly scriptural. In Proverbs 8, verse 15 and 16, the writer writes, By me kings reign and princes decree justice. By me princes rule and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. In Romans 13, verse 1, which we read a moment ago, there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. And verse 4 says, For he is the minister of God to thee for good. And so government has its origin in God. It is a divine institution. Now this concept, which formed the foundation of political theory in Europe for centuries, is completely rejected today. Today we no longer regard government as having its origins in God, but rather in the people who elected it. Government, we say, ought to be by the people for the people it's no longer for the people, then the citizens have the right to replace their government with another one, one that is more to their liking. But the Word of God says no to this. The Word of God says that government has its, its origin in and derives its authority from and is therefore accountable to no one but God. Now that raises the question, why did God institute government in the first place? And the answer of the Belgian Confession is, and I quote, because of the dissoluteness of men. And the word dissoluteness can also be translated as depravity. It's because of the depravity or the sinfulness of man that God instituted government. And it's not difficult to understand why that is the case. Because since the fall into man into sin, man has become an essentially selfish being. If he has his heart set on something, he will do whatever it takes in order to get it. He will lie and cheat and steal, even kill his neighbor if necessary. Well, in order to curb that tendency and to ensure a reasonable degree of stability in society, the Lord gave us government. Government exists to protect us from each other. And so our, cate- our confession here speaks of our gracious God has given us government. Government is a manifestation, in other words, of God's grace. We could say of his common grace to fallen man. Because without government, life would be absolutely impossible and unbearable. It would be just like in the days of the judges, when men did what was right in their own eyes. And God knew this, and he knows our hearts, and he knows the wickedness of our hearts, and that's why he gave man the gift of government. By means of government, man will be able to live his life in relative peace and security. And so government has its origin in God. But what is its task? That's our second point. The government, according to our confession, has a twofold task. First of all, it has a legislative task. That means it has the power to make laws. Our confession says that God has instituted government to draft, and I quote, certain laws and policies to the end that the dissoluteness of men might be restrained and all things carried on among them with good order and decency. So here we confess that the government has power to make laws so that society can function properly. But the government also has an executive task. That means it has the power to enforce these laws. And that only makes sense. What would be the point, after all? the government-making laws, if it didn't have the power also to enforce them. For that reason, God has invested the government with the sword. Our confession says God has invested the magistracy or the government with the sword for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. Now, the sword here means the power of enforcement. What we're confessing here is that God has given the government the power to enforce its own laws. And that means that the government has the power to place people under arrest, to put them in jail, and to impose fines and penalties, and even take away life, either by executing criminals or going to war. Now this is exactly what the scriptures teach. In Romans 13, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes this, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. So here the Apostle Paul says that the government has been given the power of the sword for two reasons. First of all, to punish those who do evil, and secondly, to protect those who do good. Those who do good have nothing to fear from the power of the government, but those who do evil most certainly do. Now, sadly, many people today no longer accept the idea that the government has the power to take away life. Many people today say that no one has the right to take away a person's life. Unless, of course, we're speaking of a doctor in an abortion clinic. But this is simply not true. The government can and must execute those who murder other people. Capital punishment is not an option, it is a necessity. Genesis 9 verses 3 to 6, God said to Noah, Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man. At the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And so here the Lord clearly teaches that the government has the right to take away a person's life in the case of murder. Now, why is that? Well, God tells us because man was created in the very image of God. And God takes a very dim view of those who would mar or destroy his image bearers, even if they are fallen image bearers. And therefore he commands murderers to be executed. We see, therefore, that the government has a two-fold task in relation to its subjects. It has a legislative task and an executive task. Now, what is the government's task in relation to the church? Well, our confession answers that question as follows, and I quote, Their office is not only to have regard unto and watch for the welfare of the civil state, but also that they protect the sacred ministry and thus may remove and prevent all idolatry and false worship, that the kingdom of Antichrist may be thus destroyed and the kingdom of Christ promoted. They must, therefore, countenance the preaching of the word of the gospel everywhere, that God may be honored and worshipped by everyone as he commands in his word. Now These words gave rise to considerable controversy in the Reformed churches in the Netherlands some hundred years ago. There were some, mainly as a result of the influence of Dr. Abraham Kuyper, who felt that the part about the government having the task to remove and prevent all idolatry and false worship was not scriptural. And they interpreted these words to mean that the government was required to establish and maintain a state church and force all of its citizens to attend that church and even persecute and execute anyone who does not attend that church. And this, they said, was unscriptural. Church and state must be kept separate. The government cannot bind the consciences of its citizens. There must be freedom of religion. And as a result, in 1905, the Reformed churches in the Netherlands deleted these words, declaring them to be in conflict with the word of God. But, my friends, there's no need to understand these words in that particular way. Contrary to what the Synod of the Reformed churches in the Netherlands asserted in 1910, our confession is not saying that the state must establish a state church, much less is it saying that it it requires all of its citizens to attend that church and to punish those who do not. That's simply reading into the confession what's not there. What our confession is saying, and with this we can wholeheartedly agree, is that the state should take a vital interest in the propagation of the Christian religion among its citizens. Now negatively that means not putting up roadblocks for the Church, making it impossible for the Church to carry out her task. For example, the government should not pass laws prohibiting door to door evangelism, or the broadcast of Christian radio and television programs, or the publication and dissemination of Christian literature, or the gathering together for public worship, nor must an attempt to regulate what is taught and what is preached. Uh, positively, this means cooperating with the Church and lending assistance to the Church wherever necessary. And there are beautiful examples of such cooperation in the past. We think, for example, of Emperor Constantine calling the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD and underwriting all of its costs. Or we can think of the Dutch government calling the Synod of Dort in 1618-19 and sponsoring the translation of the Dutch State Bible. We can think, too, of King James of England, who sponsored the translation of the King James Bible or the British Parliament calling the Westminster Assembly. These are all beautiful examples of the state cooperating with and lending assistance to the church as she attempts to carry out her own God-given task. Well, this is the proper role of the state with respect to the church. The state should not interfere with the church, nor should the church interfere with the state, but it should cooperate with the church and assist her wherever necessary. But does our confession not say that the state has the responsibility to remove and prevent all idolatry and false worship? And yes, it does. But again, that does not mean that the state must force everyone to worship God the same way and penalize those who don't. It simply means that within its own domain, that is, within the public sphere, the state must not condone or encourage the worship of a false god. For example, it must not establish a state religion, as was done during the days of Jeroboam or Nebuchadnezzar, or aid in the spread of false religion. That would be opening the door to the kingdom of Antichrist, which the state is required under God to oppose. Rather, it must actively oppose these things. It must do as Moses and Hezekiah and Josiah and others did in the Old Testament break down the graven images, remove the high places, and cut down the sacred groves and point its citizens to the worship of the true God, the God of the Bible. And to be sure, it's highly unlikely that our government today will ever live up to its responsibility in this regard. But this is exactly what the scriptures teach. And so the task of the government with respect to its citizens and the church is, as we have said, well, what now is the task of the citizens toward the state? Let's look at that under our third and final point. Our confession lists several duties which the believer has towards the state. And you'll notice that these duties apply to all believers of whatsoever state, quality, or condition they may be. In other words, whether they are rich or poor, king or peasant, ruler or ruled, everyone has duties towards the state. Now, what are these duties? Well, first of all, we must be subject. Romans 13 verse 1 says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, that is, unto the government. Now to be subject means to have an attitude of subservience. We must recognize that governments have been placed over us by God. And that means we should be subject to them. We should remember that we are not on the same level or even over them. Rather, we are subject to them. Secondly, we confess here we must pay tribute. That means we must pay taxes. Now, that's exactly what the scriptures teach. The Pharisees asked Jesus whether it was lawful to pay taxes. Jesus took out a coin and asked them whose inscription was on the coin, and they answered correctly, Caesar's. Well, then Jesus said, Render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. On another occasion, the Pharisees asked Peter whether Jesus paid taxes. And when Peter reported these words to Jesus, he commanded Peter to go fishing, and in the mouth of the first fish he caught, he would find a coin which he was to give to the tax collector. Similarly, Paul in Romans 13, 6, and 7 says, For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. And then he goes on to add, Render, therefore, to all their dues... Tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So the Bible is clear. It is the duty of every Christian to pay taxes, and we must do so in full. We must not do, as many others do today, cheat on our income taxes, or claim personal items as business expenses, or pay people to under the table, or fail to declare goods purchased in another country when we cross over the border. All this is a form of stealing, which is contrary to the Eighth Commandment. And it's also failing to live up to what God requires of us in his holy word. Thirdly, we are to show due honor and respect to our government. Now that too is what the scriptures teach. Romans 13 verse 7 says, Render therefore all their dues, tribute to whom tribute, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. In 1 Peter 2, verse 17, Peter writes, Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. That means we are not to poke fun of the government. We are not to call our leaders names or engage in disrespectful protest or slander them or speak of them in a disparaging way. Rather, we are to honor them, respect them, even when we disagree with them. Fourthly, we must obey them. That is, we must obey the government at all times, in all places, even when we don't agree. We may disagree with the government requiring everyone to register their firearms, for example, but it is the law of the land. And as Christians, we are to obey the law no matter what. And the only time we may, yes, must disobey is if the government requires us to do something that is expressly contrary to the law of God. And so our confession says that we are to obey them in all things which are not repugnant or opposed to the word of God. Fifthly and finally, we must pray for our government. First Timothy 2, verses 1 to 3, Paul writes this. He says, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. So it's clear we must pray for our government and for all who are in authority over us. That includes our police officers and judges and, and commanders of the military. In this way we will lead a quiet and peaceable life, Peter says, in all godliness and honesty. Well, friends, these are the basic duties which the believer has towards the government. Well, what about us today? Are we fulfilling these duties? Are we subject? Do we pay our taxes? Do we honor our leaders? Do we obey them? And do we pray for them? Remember, whether we like it or not, the government which we have has been given to us by God. And therefore, we must fulfill our obligations towards them. To fail to obey the government is ultimately to fail to obey God. Now, I know somebody will object to this and say, but our government is so corrupt. And just look at all the things that they're doing wrong, allowing abortion and gay marriage and a whole host of other things. We look at all the money that they waste. How can we obey the government when they do things that we simply cannot and do not agree with? Well, my friends, indeed, our government is not perfect, but still we must obey. I always find it helpful to remember in this connection the fact that when Paul wrote Romans 13 that Nero was the emperor of Rome. Nero was one of the most corrupt emperors who ever lived. He styled himself as a god and is responsible for the death of thousands of Christians. He even held garden parties and burned Christians on poles as torches. And yet Paul wrote what he did. If Paul exhorted the Romans to fear, honor, and respect the government of Rome, how much more should we fear, honor, and respect our own government, no matter how bad that government may be? Now, does that mean that we should just sit back and do nothing when we see our government doing things that it should not be doing? No, of course not. As Christians, we should be actively involved in the political process. We should be engaging in legitimate, peaceful protest, going on marches and signing petitions and writing letters to the editor or to our elected officials. We should be encouraging Christians to run for public office and support Christians who do so. We should also join and support organizations that are seeking to bring biblical principles to bear on public policy. At the very least, we should vote. And last but certainly not least, we should pray. There's no point in seeking to change the direction of our government. If we don't pray, remember the words of Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wills. And so it's God, not man, who turns the hearts of kings. And let us then pray that he will do so, so that we may be governed by men who fear the Lord, and so that we may continue, as our confession also says, to lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. Well, this then is what the Bible teaches about the civil government. We've considered its origin, its task, and our duty towards it. May God give us grace that we may be living examples of what it means to be a Christian citizen of our town, of our city, of our province, of our nation, and of our world, and that we may do so for the well-being of our neighbor and ultimately to the glory of our God. Amen. We always appreciate hearing from our listeners. If you were blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, we would very much appreciate hearing from you. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road, and Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N, and that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can email us at banneroftruth at org. For those who take the time to write, I will gladly send you a free copy of the Belgic Confession of Faith so that you can more easily follow along as I explain each of its 37 articles. If you would like to listen to the message you've just heard again, or if you would like more information about our program, including how you can contact us, and how you can listen to other messages on this program, please visit our website at banneroftruthradio.com. That's all one word, banneroftruthradio.com. <coughs> Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America, for more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. Your financial support for this program is welcome and deeply appreciated. If the Lord has placed on your heart a desire to help us to offset the costs of broadcasting this program on this station, you can send us a check in any amount. Again, Our mailing address is 3386 Mount Lehman Road, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X 2M9. Or you can visit our webpage and make a donation right on the webpage. Our webpage, again, is banneroftruthradio.com. Please remember that the Lord would have his people come together to worship him. And for that reason, we urge you, not to use this or any other radio program as a substitute for being an active contributing member of a faithful Bible-believing church. Thank you for listening, and now, until next week, may the Lord be with you all.